Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, I am going to get underway. Uh, we have a lot to cover today, so we'll see how well we can do. There's really uh, two distinct parts to what we're going to cover. So last week, I thought that I would get uh, this tail end section of the handout from last week, which is the first seven verses of chapter six done, but we didn't get to it. So uh, today we'll take chapters six and seven as a whole. But again, the first few chapters of, or first few verses of chapter six, while related um, in theme, we're going to kind of treat them a little bit separately. So the big storyline that we were kind of following through the last couple of chapters is that the word of the Lord grew. It grew in magnificent ways as we've seen how the Lord added to the number of those who believed in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as their Savior. And we've seen how it changed the lives of those people, um, how they started to live differently. They were still, if you would have asked them, they would still say, we're very much Jews. We are still very much those people of the Old Testament. The Hebrew scripture is their scriptures. It's just they have now seen in Jesus the fulfillment of God's promises that he would send forth the Messiah. There are still, though, among them people who either haven't heard about Jesus or haven't had the, the dots connected to them, people who are still wrestling with what this means. Um, the Holy Spirit is still at work. And so at this time, there's kind of in Jerusalem uh, a lot going on. Again, Luke doesn't give us a good timeline. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how much time is passing uh, when all of the these people are hearing about the word. Uh, we had the very big event of Pentecost, but as we've seen, there have been other events that have significantly increased the numbers, especially when we heard about that lame man, the man who is crippled from birth, and they brought him into the temple, and uh, then they, the uh, apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin, and they have a chance to proclaim that word again and again of exactly what it is that they believe, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they have seen um, there in Jerusalem, the one who was killed by those chief priests and, and religious leaders and so forth, but the one whom God raised from the dead. And this one is the Savior. And so as the word started to grow, we talked about how Satan saw that. And he was none too happy. And so he tries his best to stop the growth of the church, to stop that word from getting into the hearts and minds of people so they too believe in Jesus. 
And so again and again in these chapters, we're seeing how Satan attacks. First, it comes is a form of persecution, a soft form of persecution at first, where the apostles are told to stop telling others about Jesus. But when the apostles don't do that, we see that the persecution quickly ramps up. The apostles are whipped. Um, They are imprisoned. And we are going to hear today about the stoning of Stephen, that blood is shed, there will be death and martyrdom, and this is how Satan first attacks the church. It really didn't do what Satan might have wanted it to do. It didn't stop the apostles from proclaiming that word. When they are first um, imprisoned and then released by the angel and then brought back before the Sanhedrin and whipped Uh, what is their response? Yeah, they rejoiced. They rejoiced at their being beaten because they were found worthy of being like Jesus, their Savior. If you reject our master, well, of course you're going to reject us. They don't see any contradiction or problem in this. It just only further validates their calling and who they are. So they take that to be a joyful thing, um, and they pray for boldness all the more for that word to get out. We talked about how subversion was another way with Ananias and Sapphira, um, the hypocrisy, and that's immediately stamped out by uh, God himself. But we're going to hear another episode about it with uh, this guy named Simon the Magician. Um, So Satan tries that form as well. It, it, it's always present, but it just it doesn't seem to do what what he wants it to do. Because we heard that at the end of this episode of Ananias and Sapphira, that some people were a little bit afraid. Uh, they kind of stood away from the apostles. But then in the next breath, Luke writes that even more, the, the group of those who believed in Jesus was multiplied. So we get to the third strategy that Satan uses, and that's what's at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. Now, in those days, uh, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, or the Greeks, uh, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, these are both talking about Jewish groups. The, the Hellenists or the Greeks uh, would have been Jews from the diaspora, Jews that had been scattered about to probably other parts of the empire. And remember, Jews never really fully assimilate to the place where they are brought because their belief system, their world is just completely incompatible with that world. And so they, they always kind of did not fit in. And in uh, extant literature that we have, we kind of hear about this, about how the Romans talk about the, the Jews and like they're recognizable because they do stand out from everybody else. And so as some of them had time or the occasion, they would try to make their way back to, to Jerusalem. To, to Judea, to Palestine, so that they could be in and among their own people. Remember, ever since the Babylonian captivity, the, the area, the promised land, the Jews were taken away from it. And some did come back during the time of like Nehemiah, but 
it was filled with other kinds of people as well. So it's always kind of been a mixed area in the 500 or so years before this. But nevertheless, they come back. They come back because regardless of all that other stuff, the temple is there. The temple is this holy place. The temple is where they are to bring their sacrifices. And so they come back, but they come back with some of the baggage that they they had from other places. Culturally, they 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 learned how to speak another language. The Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, was first translated into the Greek language about 300 BC, give or take a, a couple of decades. Um, and so with the Hebrew Bible in Greek, Jews could still speak Greek and they could remain faithful to their beliefs. They could still read the scriptures and study them and whatnot, even though the Hebrew language kind of uh, fell by the wayside. And so they come back and even in Jerusalem, they don't quite fit in because they are Jews, but they're like the Greek kind of Jews. They might have picked up a few interesting habits or ways of life. Um, there's a cultural difference. They're all Jews, but there's still a cultural difference. We have that among, say, Lutherans, right? We're all Germans, except for those of us that aren't Germans, right? Uh, we have Norwegians and Swedes and English and Irish, and we. but among a large crowd, who is the German Lutherans, you know, we, we, we bring forth that German heritage and pride, um, and then other people bring in some other things, and like, oh, is that German? Because Lutherans are doing it, and we associate, associate German and Lutheran. Uh, well, no, there are other kinds of Lutherans, too. The, the word got out. So there's kind of some tendencies there that don't always match. Well, the same thing is happening here. The problem seems to be, though, that the Greek-speaking Jews think that their widows are being treated differently, that they're being neglected in the daily distribution. Remember, these Christians, they have everything in common and they are taking care of one another. In a sense, this shouldn't have been something that unusual because again, it's there in the Hebrew Bible. This is what the good Jews should have been doing all along to take care of the fatherless, the orphan, the widow, um, that kind of thing, the alien in their midst. But here we, we have that emphasis that the Christians were taking care of the poor among that group would be the widows because they no longer have a, a husband to, to take care of them, to bring in the income and so forth. So, the Greek-speaking ones think that they're being treated differently. Luke does not spend a lot of time on this episode to, you know, w was that really the case? Was there really neglect? Or was it, you know, just kind of a misunderstanding? Was there a language problem? You know, that kind of thing. So we don't necessarily take this as a sign of sin, just as a, a there was a problem. There was a problem in the early Christian community, so how are they going to deal with it? And the problem in it, the way that it becomes the strategy of, of Satan to try to attack the church, is that 
the apostles, for good reason, are kind of looked up to as kind of like, you guys are in charge. Uh, we're, we're following you in all of this stuff. And so when there's a problem, you, you bring it to the guys in charge and they have to fix it. And if anybody's ever been a manager or a boss or somebody, you know, high up, you know that you can easily jump on those problems and they start to consume your time. And you're now the person in charge of fixing all of those problems, which you can do. But if you're in charge, chances are your plate is already pretty full of important things. And so what happens when you turn your attention aside to go fix all of these problems? All of that other stuff that you're supposed to be doing you're the one supposed to be doing it so it doesn't get done. It falls to the wayside and yay, you might have solved that one problem, but now there are some bigger problems in the business because things are kind of falling apart. And the apostles here see the danger that if they start to like monitor the, this distribution and make sure that everything goes according to plans, that that would mean that they would be neglecting something that they see as their rule. Remember, Christ called them to be his witnesses. They were apostles sent forth with that word, with that authority, with the spirit. They were doing miraculous signs and wonders. And now if they were going to be doing this, they're human. They can only do one thing at once. And so they would be distracted and taking care of that. So the apostles say, all right, let's get everybody together and just talk about the situation. What could we do? What if we appointed people to be in charge of this? And people are probably saying, yeah, but people were supposed to be in charge of it now and see, you know, not everybody's happy. What can we do? Well, the apostles say, well, let's make sure we choose really good people for this. People who are shown to be full of faith and wisdom, people that have the smarts that can figure these kinds of things out. They don't always have to talk to us to, to, to kind of negotiate all of these details. And so the apostles say, pick out seven people, seven people to, to do this stuff. Now in the Greek language here, uh, there's, a word for what's going on here. So this daily distribution of food is called in Greek diakonia. Uh, and it is related to a word that you might have heard of, deacon or deaconess. Uh, all diakonia means is basically service, that you are serving somebody else, and it can be in a lot of different ways. Here it's serving on a table, uh, serving food to people. This is a diakonia, a service. Sometimes service and we have another word, ministry, kind of go together that you minister to other people. You are serving them. You are attending to their needs, whether that is physical, emotional, spiritual, whatnot. And so in this passage, this word is never specifically used. That is, the seven people who are chosen are not in this passage ever specifically called deacons, 
but it's clear that what they're doing is this diakonia. That word is used, that it's a service, a ministry to the widows that are there. When the apostles talk about this, they say it wouldn't be good for us to do this thing, this diakonia, this specific serving, because if we did it, we would be giving up the diakonia of the word, the ministry or the service of the word. Sometimes when we talk about not all of this Greek stuff, but just that word, ministry, there can be ministry with a capital M and ministry with a lowercase m. That is that we understand that service comes in a lot of forms, that ministry comes in a lot of different forms, and a lot of different people are involved in doing it, some in very official capacities, some just by where God happened to put you, you're the one there to do it, and you do it. But there's also this different kind of ministry. Sometimes this capital M ministry we talk about as the office of the holy ministry, the office of the keys. This is kind of what the, the apostles are picking up on here, that, that we were called to the word and to make sure that we are witnessing the word and bringing the word out. And so we can't be distracted by this. Now, here's the, the potential confusion. They're not saying this is more important than this. They're, they're not putting them at odds with one another. They're just realizing we're only human. We can only do one thing. And so if we do this thing, it means we would stop doing this. This is a good thing. In fact, we need to make sure that the best people are doing it so that this gets done. But we recognize we can't be distracted because if we stop doing this, there are no other apostles. We are the ones that Jesus has chosen. And this kind of has contemporary um, applicability, right? Um, because pastors know this all too well, uh, that there's always a lot that has to be done, that can be done, that's necessary, that's important to do. And pastors being just one individual, they're never going to be able to do that all. And so they have to make a choice. Do I attend to this, turn my back on that? Do I do this, stop doing that? And the ideal, this form of strategy of distraction is to throw things in the way so that the word stops being at the center of what they are doing, because that's a victory for Satan. Satan doesn't care if small needs are met. If the word stops, it all falls apart. It all stops. And so Pastors are, are never people who are more important. They, they are called out of your midst. You're, you are the ones that, uh, through the Holy Spirit's work, call pastors to come among you because you say, this ministry is important. It needs to be done. We need, we need to have somebody that will attend to this. And, and that's good. But we can never forget 
that this ministry is also important. It also needs people to attend to it and to do it. Uh, Martin Luther had this big way of talking about this as the office of the priesthood of all believers. That is that unlike how the Roman church had come to be known, you know, that the Pope is on top and then the cardinals and bishops and so forth, um, and it was like this hierarchy. And Martin Luther said, no way. We're all one in Christ. Jesus is the head of the church, not the Pope, not Martin Luther, not the district president or so, you know, insert your person there. We're all one. And so we're all doing this work together. Now, some people might do different works, but one of those is not more important or less important. Paul talked a lot about this in his letters to the Corinthians, right? The body of Christ. We are all one body with many different parts. But if one part suffers, we all suffer. So that's the ideal, what Paul was talking about, that, that if we recognize that we're all working together, that there is a unity, then we overcome this potential distraction of, of Satan, that we all work together to one end doing different things. There isn't one who is more important than the other. Jesus is the reason why we do everything we do. And we serve one another and we serve the world through our own vocations, through the places where God has put us. But those are important things and we dare not forsake them. So take it out of the quote-unquote, religious realm. You are your parents, oops, sorry, I said that backwards. You are your children's parents, if you have children. They, they have you as, as mom or dad. You dare not neglect that calling, that ministry, that vocation, because that is where God placed you. I mean, that doesn't mean that you have to be a stay-at-home parent and, you know, quit a job and you can't do any of those things, but it means that you make sure that your your kids are, are loved, are taken care of, and most especially brought up in the Word of God. That's not the church's responsibility. That's not the pastor's responsibility. That's a parent's responsibility. And a church, a pastor, we all join together to serve one another, but you have your own specific, unique role, and this is awesome, and this is important, but Satan will try to distract and undermine, and it sounds pretty harmless. I mean, this, especially persecution, that would seem like this is Satan's number one go-to way to try to get rid of the church, but it's really these more subtle ways that can be just as destructive. I mean, imagine if the apostles really stopped being the apostles and just were giving out the food, the bread, the water, whatever it is that they had. Now, that's a good work. It would have been very beneficial, but the word of the Lord growing might have stopped because the word stopped getting out. So it seems really subtle, but it's really, I think, a, a key thing. And like I said, it, it gets to us still to this day. And in my mind, the only, um, the only way to, to get around it is to recognize 
all of our value and important. I think Martin Luther had that right at the priesthood of all believers, uh, that, that Paul had that right when, when he said that we are all members of one body. Different, we all have different strengths, we all have different gifts, but to hold back those gifts or to, to not use your gifts that you have, but to use gifts that somebody else has, you know, like you're really good at musical ability. Uh, and you never use that musical gift. Instead, uh, you clean the toilets and paint the walls. Now, this is a good service. It helps the church, the school, whatever. But imagine the blessing that would, would happen if you're able to use that gift that he gave you for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of all people. So I think that's what's going on here at the beginning of chapter six. It, it's easy to miss and kind of think of this as merely, this introduces this guy, Stephen, because that's where we turn to next. Who is Stephen and why is he important? Well, Stephen just happens to be one of the people who's chosen for this particular ministry um, to, to wait on tables. And he's a good candidate for it. He was somebody that people respected. Um, you might miss this, but all of the list, the list of the names of these guys that are chosen, uh, they're all Greek names. So even though the apostles didn't specifically say, let's make sure we choose Greek people, Greek speaking servants, it seems like that's what they did. Um, if they were Hebrews, they probably would have had more Hebrew names. And so if the problem really was in the distribution of food, like there was a language barrier. Oh, we thought that they had food. We couldn't understand what they were saying. The gift of Pentecost was there at Pentecost. It, it did not stick around. So let's make sure that those that are there know these people, maybe are, are part of that community. And, you know, that way there, there is no conflict. There is no problem. And we don't hear any more about this particular issue. We are going to hear a lot more about a conflict between Jews and Greeks, but not about this particular, are the widows being fed or neglected or whatnot. So in one sense, they it seems like they solve the problem with what they do, appointing these seven guys. But again, Satan is going to look for every possible way to undermine the church. And as we're going to find out, the apostles maybe didn't have the best understanding uh, of what's going on. Like maybe it seemed good to send Greek-speaking people to the widows, um, but was, was what they were doing a way of kind of like maintaining segregation? Like, okay, we have the Greeks here, we have the Hebrews here. They, they weren't realizing that we're all one. And the reason I say maybe the apostles didn't understand that is because we're going to hear a lot more about a Peter and Cornelius and the breakthrough that, that Peter has. Up until this point, Peter still seems to be very much on the track of this is a message for Jews and not Gentiles. Or if it's for Gentiles, Gentiles first have to become Jews. And, and it, so we'll see where that's going. They could have been from all over. It doesn't say, but 
Greek was the very common language of the whole Roman Empire. So they could have been in Africa, they could have been in Asia, any place. It doesn't specifically say. But if they were in that, Greek would have been the common language kind of wherever they were placed. In Jerusalem? They, they seem to stand out because they're identified as a distinct group and they're called the Hellenists or the Greeks. Yeah. So that, again, we might want more information of what exactly was happening, but all we have is kind of what you read there. Not necessarily. I mean, it could have been because they uprooted themselves from where they were. But again, by definition, a widow doesn't have that social safety net. Whether you're in Jerusalem or far away, um, you're, you're a person that could easily slip through the cracks. Yeah. 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 No, because they, the Greek doesn't have capital in lowercase. Like they don't, they don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the same word. It's when the apostles say we should not neglect the ministry of the word. So they differentiate the word diakonia by a specific type of ministry. The, the word ministry is ours. This, this ministry, it's still a good ministry, but it's, it's, it's different. So in other words, what's going on in this distribution? This isn't like Holy Communion, a worship service and, and the Lord's Supper. This is just a daily distribution of, of food. So it's not like we're a worship service kind of thing. It, there's something, something different that the apostles are talking about. Um, yeah, yeah, if, if they needed money to, to purchase food, but it's, it's, again, kind of a, a sustenance thing. Uh, you know, they're not selling things to enrich other people. It's just, what does everybody for their daily bread need? The only reason why I kind of point this out is because sometimes Stephen in Bibles or whatever is called a deacon and, He's not specifically named that, but you could see why he is called that. The other reason is because in church bodies today, there are people who have the title deacon or deaconess. Um, that's not necessarily related to this particular episode in Acts 6. It's because of that word, deacon, deaconess, simply means a minister, a servant. And what do deacons or deaconesses do? Regardless of the church body, they are servants of other people. A deacon is never found at the top of the food chain. They are always people who are called for very specific kinds of serving needs. Um, and it's, it's not that they're in charge of word and sacrament ministry where they are. They are attending to uh, the needs so that word and sacrament ministry can continue to be focused on by, by other people. Okay, so Stephen pops up here, and then the next thing we hear about Stephen in, in verse 8, he's full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the uh, people, which is kind of amazing 
because up until this point, the only people that Luke has talked about doing miraculous signs and wonders are in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus himself, and then in Acts, the apostles. Nobody else has been talked about doing these things. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that other people weren't. It just means Luke hasn't ever talked about that. But here, now Stephen is added as another person doing these miraculous things. And the context in the next few verses, we hear about him doing work among a synagogue. Uh, he talks about a synagogue of freedmen, of those from Cyrene and Alexandria and Cilicia and Asia. These are all different places, uh, except for freedmen. Freedmen are people who were formerly slaves, who no longer are. But all the rest of them are geographical places. And so it's unclear whether Stephen is going to these other synagogues to distribute food, because that's where their widows are. They're in their own synagogues. Um, I looked up and the Talmud, which isn't necessarily a reliable source, but it said that before 70 AD, there were over 600 synagogues in Jerusalem. Now, a synagogue could be an actual building. A synagogue could simply refer to people, just like the word church can refer to a building, but can also refer to a people group. Um, and a synagogue had to have a minimum of 10 people. So this probably isn't the right analogy, but a synagogue was primarily a place where the word is read and taught and prayers are offered. It's not a temple. It's, there are no sacrifices that, that take place there. No forgiveness of sins offered. It is dedicated to reading and understanding the word and to prayer. And as long as you had 10 people, that could count as a synagogue. Now, you know, just kind of imagine you could have a particular space and five synagogues could be housed in that. That is five different groups at different times might come and use that synagogue for their space and for their time of the word and prayer. So when you hear there are 630 synagogues in Jerusalem, you're like, you must have, like, they've been, they were everywhere. Well, Jerusalem is the place of the Jews and where faithful people are going to be. They're going to be reading God's word. And, and so it kind of makes sense. But what we know about what's going on here is, is unclear. Did he go to different synagogues or is there only one? Why was he going to the synagogues? Was he also teaching the word? So in addition to ministry, lowercase, just distributing food, he was also doing the, the teaching of the word. It, it's unclear, but it seems there's some kind of teaching going on because he's getting into arguments with people. Like they are hearing Stephen talking about things that they don't think is right. And so they start to argue with him and they find that they can't win any of the arguments, that Stephen's wisdom surpasses their own. And that kind of gets to them. So again, imagine in these synagogues, you have Jews, Christian Jews, but also non-Christian Jews. That is, some of these people do now believe Jesus is the Messiah. Some of them either reject it or aren't sure. And so you kind of have a situation that's potentially explosive. Explosive can be positive and negative. 
in Pentecost, we saw explosive was positive. How many people all of a sudden now believed? Here, it's kind of negative because evidently Stephen got some of the wrong people upset. And they were upset that they couldn't win any of these arguments, that what Stephen was teaching, other people were saying, oh, yeah, that sounds right. That that does sound like the word of God. This is true wisdom. And so they're getting scared. Stephen's teaching the wrong things. He's leading people away from our Old Testament understanding and God. What can we do? Well, they're no dummies. They know who the conservative high authorities are, the chief priest, the council, the Sanhedrin. These are the ones that you tattle when somebody tattle on when somebody's teaching false doctrine. And so that's what they do. And that tips off a set of circumstances that by now should look very familiar. Again, Satan's strategies are not, he, he, he doesn't come up with new things. It, it all kind of looks the same after a while. And so we've seen what's going to happen here with the apostles and before that with Jesus himself. It's all fitting a pattern. So if you have somebody who is teaching the word of God, the gospel of Jesus, what do you do to try to stop them? What, what can you do to try to stop them? You tell them to be quiet, but that's not working. How do you, how do you turn up the heat a little bit more? Jail, you turn people against them? Divide them up? Yeah. And, and the, the, the best way is to, you know, to get them in jail so they're off the streets. They're not going to your synagogues anymore. Um, but it's usually, there's a lot of animosity there because what we're going to find out is that they are going to charge him with blasphemy. Blasphemy means what? Speaking against God. Yeah, you're specifically taking God out of that number one position. Uh, you're breaking the first commandment in some way. You're uh, using his name in vain. And this is like the highest crime uh, among Jews. So killing somebody is a crime. It's bad. But the highest crime is blasphemy. This is a crime that there's only one penalty for. Crimes of, you know, homicide, there's different kinds of severity. Like, was it intentional or not? But blasphemy, there's only going to be one end, and that end is death. So, when they go to Stephen, they're not just trying to get him put in jail for like being a bad guy. They go right to it. The, the charge has to be blasphemy. And the same is, is what they come against the apostles. Well, the apostles are a little bit different because they're, they're faced with this problem. Remember that this man has been healed in Jesus's name and they can't contradict it. And they, they talk about Jesus being raised from the dead and they can't contradict that. So like they're in a rather uncomfortable position. But here with Stephen, it seems to be a pretty cut and dry thing, just like it was with Jesus. So Stephen's trial most closely resembles not the trial with the apostles before, but the trial with Jesus. That he's charged 
with blasphemy that in order to do this, they have to bring forth false witnesses, just like with Jesus. The charges are kind of twofold in nature. They say that he is teaching against Moses. He's saying bad things against Moses. And in the Jewish world, you don't do that because Moses is kind of like number one. He's the guy that brought us the law. And the law is the most important thing to us and to our lives. So if you're speaking against Moses, it's basically the same thing as speaking against God. And, and you're also speaking against the temple. And the temple is the most holy place. This is God's place. And so if you're speaking against the temple, you're speaking against God, his seat, his place. Don't do it. So Stephen has two charges in front of him, that he speaks against the temple. This is blasphemy, but also that he speaks against Moses and the law, which also is blasphemy. So he has to kind of defend himself from two different sides. But in the end, it's all one charge. You're, you're blaspheming God. You are speaking against him. One interesting thing about why, why didn't they just stick with one thing? Uh, just say that he's teaching against the temple and that would have been enough. Luke doesn't tell us this, but kind of reading between the lines, it seems that they really hated Stephen. Remember how I said that the Sanhedrin, this council is divided up into two different groups? Uh, you have the Pharisees and you have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were particularly the party of the temple. They were very closely connected to the chief priest and to all that's going on there. That's one of the reasons that we're hearing a lot about the Sadducees right now, because all that the apostles are doing is in and around the temple itself, and the Sadducees are making sure that the temple stuff happens the way it is. The Pharisees are... It's not that they're against the temple, but they're all about the law. They're all about these traditions that they've developed around the law to keep the law in the first place in our society. If the law goes, everything else goes. That's what the Pharisees are saying. The Sadducees are saying the, the, other, the other problem is a different problem. Nobody's in church anymore. Nobody's coming to the temple. The problem with our society is that people aren't there. If we get the temple right, everything else will be okay. Stephen has both going against him, right? If he's speaking against the law, the Pharisees are going to be like, this guy's no good. If he's speaking against the temple, the Sadducees are going to say, this guy's no good. If you're on a jury and you can get both people because of, they might disagree on the charges apart, but together, yeah, we don't like this guy. The deck is stacked. You can tell before Stephen even starts speaking what the outcome of this is going to be. Stephen's defense is very, very long. Um, it's one of the longer speeches. It's not always considered one of the most exciting ones. It doesn't have maybe the flourishes of, of Peter's and of Paul's later. Um, it deserves time and attention, so you should read it. But I'm going to summarize it. There's four main points uh, that he talks about. In chronological order, he's kind of running through Jewish history. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Joseph. He talks about Moses. And then kind of at the end, he puts together David and Solomon. In all of those different sections, he sort of maintains one point. Well, he brings in a few different ideas, but, but one of the biggest points is 
this focus on the temple and the law. Okay, you're, you're hung up on these things, people. What was our life like before the temple? Was there life for Jews? Did we have faith? What was life like before the law? Were there Jews before the law? So he goes chronologically before all of this stuff happens to point out that God and our relationship to him is not predicated on these things. We had a relationship before all of these things were put in place. In fact, you guys have put God in in such a narrow little window that you are throwing out our history. If you want to talk about being Jewish, Stephen is basically saying, I'm more Jewish than you guys are. Because in the time of Abraham, God came to Abraham where? At the temple, right? No, there was no temple. Well, then at Jerusalem, because this is the holy city. No, not at Jerusalem. Well, then where? In, in, in Mesopotamia, in the, in the lands of the Chaldeans, those heathens, those Gentiles, we hate them, you know, that sort of thing. God was there. God came to Abraham among them, and God led Abraham, and he created a people. He created a people out of Abraham by giving him a promise and a covenant. The people of Israel are first and foremost not a people of the law or of the temple, but a people of the covenant. People who are defined by God's initiative by God's promise and God's grace. That's what Stephen establishes chronologically in his story. And so when he goes, beginning with Abraham throughout history, he points out God's initiative and how God is with his people apart from the temple, apart from the law, in foreign lands, in this land, all over. It's like God is a pilgrim and the whole world is his. And The most important connection then is not that the Israelites and the Hebrews are tied to the temple or to Jerusalem or to Judea, but they are tied to this God who has made a covenant with his people, that he is his people everywhere, everywhere, and he will go with them everywhere they go. And so Stephen is saying, you're focused on the temple and on this place and on the law, but don't you know that there is a story that was developed before that? And so in the end, he talks about how the Israelites in the wilderness, the ones who rejected Moses by not following the Ten Commandments, but instead making their own idols and worshiping them, Those are just like the people that I'm standing in front of and talking to, Stephen is saying. You stiff-necked people. Where did stiff-necked, where does that pop out in our narrative? In the wilderness wanderings, right? The Israelites are the stiff-necked people. God himself is the one who calls them that. Uh, Stephen talks about them being uncircumcised of, of hearts and ears, that they are focused on outward circumcision, but again, the most important thing is the covenant and the faith of the covenant. Faith in God's initiative, in God's promises, and these people don't have that. They're no different than those Israelites at the mountain of Sinai that worshiped other gods. They are not listening to the one true God. So, 
he never says that I, I spoke against the temple or the law. He doesn't really attack that. He goes, what is before it? To again, establish that priority the misplaced priorities of the people there and of the ultimate fulfillment of of Jesus, the one that he is proclaiming. So yeah, it is true that Jesus talks about destroying the temple. And that's probably like the exact thing that they're, they could point to and say, Stephen is saying that Jesus will destroy the temple and yada, 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 he's against the temple. But rather than focusing on that really bright fire, he goes to the Hebrew scriptures and straightens them out and runs through that narrative to make the points that he's making. Um, the end result, though, is when you are in front of a jury and you call them stiff-necked people and you compare them to those that worship Baal, uh, if that conclusion, which I said was kind of already set in stone before the trial began, it's unclear whether Stephen had more to say and they just stopped him. Because as you read it, you, maybe you kind of want a little bit more of a, of a conclusion, you know, more positive proclamation. But in the world of Luther and law and gospel, these are not repentant people. These are not people that he's preaching the gospel to. He's preaching the law to them. And they hear the law and they rage even more. And the verdict is easily reached. They start picking up stones and throw them at our man Stephen, who once again, we've had this comparison of him and Jesus just by the sequence of events, but even more closely is brought into that pattern that Jesus filled. Um, because as he is being stoned, uh, just like Jesus spoke from the cross, he, he speaks words of forgiveness. Not direct forgiveness, because he's not Jesus, but he says, don't hold this against them, God. Don't hold their, their sin and their stubbornness against them. Give them more chances to hear this word and repent. But he also says to God, to Jesus, to receive his spirit. Jesus himself prayed those words to his father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So Stephen is kind of being this Jesus-like figure, which is what the apostles were thanking God for when they were persecuted. Thank you that we were found worthy enough to follow in our Savior's footsteps. There's a couple other things. Before he starts to speak, uh, it says that he had like the, the complexion of an angel. This is an interesting uh, correspondence to Moses. Remember when Moses... I have the movie in my head. Charlton Heston, when he comes off of that mountain, he looks different. He looks like he was just in a wind tunnel and, you know, his hair is dyed and whatnot. Uh, in Exodus 34, 29, it talks about how Moses shone, the glory shone on his face after talking with the Lord. And this complexion of being like an angel that Stephen has is kind of a way of saying, remember how they're, trying to go against him for speaking against Moses. He's more like Moses now than he ever was before and has that, that brightness to him. The other thing at the end, he, he's given a revelation into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. This is interesting because normally when Jesus is being talked about at the right hand of the Father, what is his posture? 
seated, right? He is sitting or seated at the right hand of the Father. And so this is interesting, and I, I couldn't really figure out the, you know, what do people think is going on here? But one of the possible possibilities is Jesus is here seen not as one who is seated, but as one who is standing. Because if you're in court and testifying, and we're going to testify, you, you would have that position of standing, I guess. Um, again, it's hard to kind of figure all of that out. But if that were true, then Jesus here, we had false witnesses speak against Stephen. Stephen himself gave his witness. But to see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, he gives the ultimate witness, and his witness is on Stephen's behalf. No matter what happens to Stephen, Jesus has spoken for him. He is one of his saints, and he is chosen for this gift of martyrdom, uh, to give his life for the proclamation of that word, standing up for Jesus and standing up for that gospel truth. Okay, that's, that was really dancing over the, the top of Stephen's speech. You could spend more time there, um, but there's, there's, there's more, much more to come. We're going to hear about Philip next, and Philip, and especially the Philip story of the Ethiopian eunuch, we're starting to see how now we're launching. All of this has been happening in Jerusalem, but Stephen's speech marks a turning point. It's kind of there thematically. God is a God who is a pilgrim God. He's always on the move, and he's with his people who are on the move. So far as people, as we've heard about them, haven't been much on the move. They've been in Jerusalem, but now they are going to be moving out. The irony of this, why do they start moving out? Persecution. So Satan thinks that he's destroying the church, he accidentally serves to be the catalyst. People head out of Jerusalem after what happens to Stephen, but that only serves the word's purpose, because now the word's not just in Jerusalem, it's going to go far and wide. All right, we'll call it a quits there for today. Thanks for bearing with me. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.